Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. For the first time in a long time, we have one of our three in action, and he returns Novak Djokovic to Paris, lifts the title for his 37th Masters 1000 to pass Rafael Nadal, a historic week for him. He secured year-end number one for the seventh time. We will talk about that later in the show, but let's start with this final against Daniil Medvedev. As Djokovic earns his revenge from the U.S. Open in some sort of way, at the very least. But this head-to-head, this rivalry, Djokovic and Medvedev, and Novak said it is probably his number one rivalry at the moment. Every time these two are in the same draw in a hardcourt tournament, they seem to meet in the final. So this feels pretty important. Amy, what's your read right now? on the Djokovic-Medvedev matchup? That it's a good one. It's an epic. It's something that is a a clash of um, different styles that I really like. Um, On the surface, you would think that it is not a clash of different styles, but I think Djokovic is so far advanced in his game right now that he's solve the puzzle one step ahead of Medvedev and or he's made the chess move one step ahead. Um, It it appears that they're uh, having a budding friendship because they've been practicing against each other leading into this tournament, which enhances the rivalry even more. And I do believe that these two are the top of the sport right now. And then several rungs down is starts the next best. So it's these two and then boom, 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 everybody else. I do think that Djokovic got the best of Medvedev in this one, uh, just coming to the net. That, that was the big story. And Djokovic chooses to start making serve and volley a major component of his game today. And that happened and um, that's pretty exciting. Well, it looks to me like it's what may, what's neat about Medvedev, <clears throat> he strikes me, he's a post three player in the wake of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Other guys have to come up with other solutions. And Medvedev is pretty good at both the return game and the serve game. And he can do both of those and he can exchange backhands with Novak. I mean, that became pretty clear in that US Open final. That's like, he doesn't fear that at all. So Djokovic in the Paris final had to come up with something new. And now, so now we enter the real, the real competitive dance, which is really fun to see who innovates more to do what with what. So then it was, does Medvedev come up with something else? Or does Medvedev say, well, how do I get back to execute better what works at the US Open over a course of three out of five sets? So, so now it is really fun. And unquestionably, you're right, Amy, those two, I mean, they won the majors this year. And the other guys, I mean, Dominic team will just probably write off 2021 and we're going to see what's to come with Federer and Nadal. So right now it's, it's Djokovic and Medvedev. And uh, I think it's some, some really interesting tennis. I mean, 
Medvedev is a fascinating player. We're going to be studying him a lot more closely in the years to come, but he's already a real player of interest, a real kind of a cult favorite right now with a big cult following. I agree with that. Well, Novak does lean on the serve and volley here, and it's an interesting... It was an interesting choice. I think he probably goes into the match with that in mind, just based on how committed he was to executing it over and over and over again. He finishes the match having served and volleyed 22 times, winning 18 of the points. That doesn't include serves that didn't go in. If you include those, he attempted to serve and volley 39 times, and he hit 86 total serves. So the number is this, 45%. On 45% of points... Djokovic was serving volleying. That is mind-blowing in 2021. Well, and what's important about it, what, what's, what needs to be understood about net rushing, speaking as a long-standing net rusher, is how it alters the other 55% of the points. Because now you're in the head of the returner in a different kind of way. Because now the returner knows, oh, I can't just clear the net with my return and hit it eight feet over the net. So that alters the whole pattern. And I hope Rally Opelka watched that and saw that because that's the way someone like that can win the French Open with kick serves and angle volleys. Not that Novak is desert to the Opelka level, but I think, I think there's a real learning going on here that has to do, uh, we're not going to see the days of Stefan Edberg serving and volleying 100% of first serve points. But now to mix it and to put it in the mix, uh, it's really good because it can work. And I would, I would like to add that a lot of coaches and, you know, pundits within the sport will say, oh, sure, as a surprise tactic, mix it in, serve and volley. Well, this was a little more than a surprise tactic. I mean, this was like a major component. You could even maybe argue a plan A, uh, especially from the second set on, of how Novak played yesterday. So this whole surprise tactic yeah use it as that no it was much more than that okay well you do it i've seen there are players i've seen they do it they're up 40 love and then they do it but then the question now the question becomes and this gets in some real upper division chess is when you do it and what the score is and reading the return and that's got to be there's got to be a lot of a lot of reading to understand what which volley do you hit better to, to win the point or to force the play. That's interesting. But you could see Novak coming to it. He's so, he's so diligent. You could just see his craftsmanship and every time he does something, whether it's a serve, the volley, you know, there's a discipline because it's not, it wasn't helter skelter. Well, Medvedev is also not a normal returner. I think the pundits who say you can't serve in volley, I think they, 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 have, they have points. Uh, just like uh, a Craig O'Shaughnessy has points to say players need to serve and volley more. But when it comes to Medvedev specifically, he has, I guess, borrowed from a Nadal innovation. If uh, And I don't know if Nadal can really be credited with this 100%, but the deep return position, the way back in the back fence, nowhere else Hello, to go. Bjorn Borg. Hello, Jump in. How Hello, far Bjorn. back? How far back was Bjorn Borg? Not as far as Nadal, but you know Tommy Robredo. I've I've seen a number of players. I mean, if we go to Borg to, to more recently Tommy Robredo. A number of players. Okay. I think I think I would call it a Nadal innovation. I would just call it a Nadal a visible execution because it happens when the big man on campus does it. We see it a lot because he's playing in semis and finals. Sure, becoming, I would also, becoming more I would, popular. 
Is that safe to say? Team uh, Medvedev. Yeah, well, when a big guy does, when a great guy does it, and Team did it too. When a great guy does, hey, huh? Popular, yeah, popular. Not, you mean uh, deployed? Why not? Because hey, wait, this guy wins all the time, and he does it. Why not try it? He's winning with it. I think it's surface dependent too. I mean. It, it, some of the hard courts are becoming very slow. So if you're playing on a slow surface and you want to stand way back and take a real full swing, as opposed to, you know, shortening it up and, and doing that kind of a return, um, you know, you're going to play around with that. And maybe there's some experimentation going on. But in terms of the, the serve and volley, I just wanted to point out that you have to have the skills to do it. And you have to have the fitness to do it. So to just say, ah, I'm going to start serving and volleying a lot without having worked on it is maybe not advisable. And that's why I, I liked what you said in the very beginning, Gil, when you said that this was something that he probably had been working on. Yeah. Well, Novak, I, I think when you see Djokovic, you can always tell that he had been working on something because he's, he's not going to just randomly trot something out. And, uh, and that, but that's true for all pros. That's why they're pros. I mean, I think that's different than... Uh, recreational players who don't practice they don't practice things they just play just play a lot of practice sets and, and a lot of matches and uh, but as far as this return position goes Nadal did that in the 2017 U.S. Open final versus Kevin Anderson and look if, if the guy is not serving volleying it's a great thing to do I mean you know this Gil I mean remember we watched you uh, we watched you playing a match and I thought wow if I stood that far back to return my return bounced into the net before it right. went anywhere I mean that's a common teaching method. Yeah, Nadal will will do it on clay, 10 feet or more behind the baseline, regardless of who he's playing. And for Medvedev, it doesn't really matter what surface he's on. He was standing that far back on the slick, low bouncing, although less so nowadays, Wimbledon. Uh, but I think the point that I ultimately wanted to get to was with Nadal and his deep return position, people for a decade have been saying, why don't people just serve and volley, serve and volley. And then I think time and time again, he pretty much shows you that it's not quite that simple. You can't just serve and volley against Nadal and, and expect to win unless you're Dustin Brown against Nadal with a bum knee at Wimbledon. Um, but Medvedev and Nadal are different in this respect. Medvedev's a flat hitter from the back fence. Nadal has more spin than anyone in the world. And I think that makes a difference when you're trying to execute the serve and volley. Oh, no well, I, also, I think you need to look at where is the returner after they've struck the ball. And Nadal does something that they call climbing the ladder where, you know, you, he yeah, he's standing way back, but you blink and he's in a perfectly normal and legitimate return position. So if you're gonna serve in volley as a volleyer, you, I think you really have to have a plan for what you're gonna do with that volley. Are you gonna put some backspin on it and make it short? Well, is he standing, by the time you hit that volley, is he really still standing that far back? I think if you look at the video, you'll see that Nadal corrects his position really quickly. And Medvedev too, you know, he can take one step and he's, you know, at, in a normal spot. But, um, you know, Medvedev was just um, completely caught off guard. And I, I, the biggest thing for me was that it affected the returns, all the returns because of that tactic. Well, right. And so then the question is, was Medvedev caught off guard because it occurred or also because it was new and frequent? 
And so that's what's going to be fun to see marching forward. I think the play when you serve in volley and someone's standing for that far back is to volley short angle, but that takes practice. And again, you make a great point, Gil, versus a flat ball, it's one thing versus a Topson ball, it's other. On the other hand, a Topson ball that someone is hit from eight feet behind the baseline is different than when one hits. I mean, this gets, this gets to practice habits and things people work on because that stuff has to be practiced. And then do you practice it uh, in playing doubles? Do you practice it uh, playing lower to, you know, lesser players? I mean, again, this is, so carry the implication beyond just Djokovic and Medvedev, but to other people, how they actually go about honing an arsenal and how they do that. Of course, the hard thing in pro tennis, it's hard to practice against someone like Nadal, unless it's Nadal. Who are you gonna to get to, 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 okay, I want you to stand that far back and I want you to get this return at about 4,200 RPM. And be a lefty. Yeah, there, there, I was gonna say, uh, right-handers, you probably wanna practice with like rude or sock, but they're righties. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. that's a great point, Joel, the, the doubles, Novak played doubles in Paris this week. So how many serve and volley repetitions did he get, uh, playing with, I think it was, uh, Krajinovic, right this week. I didn't see that much of that doubles, So I'm not sure how much, I'm not sure either. And, and he had a walkover from Monfils, So it's not like he got much practice in on his way to the finals that it makes it all the more impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just going to be interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how, or if Novak wishes to incorporate certain volley into his arsenal in the, in the years to come, because he's like, Hmm, this is kind of interesting. Let me see. I mean, we'll see, we'll see how that goes from. And I think, I mean, of course had such a high success rate. That's good. I mean, that's a remarkable success rate that high, but 90%. And let's not forget who his idol is Pete Sampras, not Andre Agassi. And th that's always something that's, surprised me a little bit because play style wise he's more an agassi but you don't you know the the idols aren't based on aren't based on ball hitting style always don't tell me that don't my, that. mind us <laughs> i'm a great i'm aware of you david i got it but not but not all are i mean sometimes it's all i mean you know the famous story is novak being six years old and watching the wimbledon final and seeing and seeing Sampras just win and it's not like he's thinking well i'm not quite sure i'm going to be a split step Sir Volley guy, you know, it's like, it's just a person. It's just a person in a, in a moment. And then sometimes it's a literal, like John Macro's Rod Laver, and that's very vivid. You know, Gil Gross, it's David Ferrer, and that's very vivid too. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. 
And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Last one on, on this. Joel, you hit on the efficiency. 18 for 22.1. What does that mean for the next time they play? Because I, I would... I would caution against an assumption that that's going to be the norm. Now, obviously it'll be interesting to see what Medvedev does. Does he move up? Does he make adjustments? But even without adjustments, Novak's execution there and just how often it worked is probably something. And we see this in sports all the time. It's it's not necessarily going to work like that every time. No, it won't. I mean, that's a pretty high ratio, but it's not about even the percentage. It's about the existence. Yeah. It's about the premise, the, pr- the presence, the presence. Like, see, now, now I have another way to break up your game. Look what mm-hmm. I did. Paris was kind of this little test market. And now we saw something here, no different than like a, uh, in American football, a, a quarterback knowing, okay, now I know about that weak cornerback on your left side. And so now I know, I know it and you know it, and I may do it and I may not do it, but now it's in play. And I think that's kind of the genius of Novak trotting it out here. I don't know if he would have trotted it out in a major, in a grand slam match, trotting out, but now he has it and it worked. And if you're Novak, you gotta think, wow, hey, I'm kind of onto something here. Medvedev's tough in those baseline rallies. I don't blame Novak for for searching for uh, alternatives. So it's incredible, you know? I mean, and this is why we can do the show on these three guys is because we will never run out of days like this, where we're talking about something that in Novak's entire career, we've never really seen this from him uh, leaning on the serve and volley as a regular tactic point in and point out. Here's another uh, question. Here's another thing I want to add to this. When you do it, when you try a new tactic against an opponent who's beaten you as Medvedev had or challenged you as much as Medvedev has with Novak, do you think, Hey, wait a second. Why just versus Medvedev? Why not versus Andy Murray? Why not versus Zverev? Why not? Why not? Why not? I mean, and it was just, just to see, just to, I mean, because I think, I think what we've seen before in the years is when Novak serves in volleys, it's sort of like, oh my, he's really searching for answers. You know, it's a plan C. Now if he's seeing, wait a second, this doesn't have to be a plan C. Look how much I've honed this. Again, he's not going to become Stefan Edberg or Pete Sampras, but Maybe it's something to inject it. It's similar to the way that Federer altered his backhand. The, I have a great quote from Novak after the, the match. It said, that was part of the strategy to try to mix it up, put variety and take away his time. He stands really far back, just like you said, puts a lot of returns back in play. He makes you suffer into unforced errors. You need to have controlled aggression against him. Think about that. Well, I uh, think about that. Would Novak Djokovic acknowledge that someone made him suffer into unforced errors? I mean, that is that's pretty. The, yeah, that's 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 Chris Everett saying that about Martina, about Martina or or Tracy Austin. Someone say, I gotta do a little innovating here, and that could carry some strong that that could carry some strong implications for Novak for the next few years. That's the thing with Medvedev. It, Novak takes the court and. If he's on the other side of the net, 
all these things that are usually my advantage, rally tolerance, consistency, solidness, you know, movement, defense. Medvedev is like, I'm, I can match that. I can do that too. So that's why why uh, Novak uses tools that Daniil doesn't have right now. Um, really well, awesome stuff. You know, it's like the A, because Medvedev is saying, don't you see? I'm your child. You have, yeah. to, have to be a really good baseline if I want to compete with you. And so here I am. But for Medvedev to try to start coming forward, um, I mean, looking at him yesterday, there were opportunities for him. You know, he was given a short ball and the number of times I saw him retreat. So he just doesn't have the skills that we know of, you know, and, and you don't have the skill unless you can bring it in a, in a final um, then he, you know, I don't know what the plan would be. Go to work in the off season. It'll be interesting to see what the chess move is. Well, then he'll see also, or, or alter the return position or change return matters. You know, it's not, it's not that he has to then take it to Novak as much as he has to figure out a way to, to derail it. I don't know. It's fun to see. And it'll be interesting to see in the years to come, what skills Medvedev builds. I mean, Medvedev is pretty young. And look at look. Let's let's go watch Novak when he was that age and see how Novak. Look how Novak. And, that, and that's that's the fun part of competition is how each person asks these questions of the other, and we see if they can come up with answers. Novak's volleys when he was twenty three years old was not capable of of what we just saw. I think we'd all agree with that. Right. All right. Let's get to the record seven year end number ones. He he said coming into Paris. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm playing this event. And he gets it done after a semifinal win over, over Hubert Hercotch. Um, This is a massive, massive record. When you look at Djokovic holding the record for weeks at number one, now that he has year end number one, he kind of owns this statistical category now of trying to be number one in the world. It's hard to think of a data category he won't own by the time he's through playing. I mean, as far as the quantitative accomplishments, I mean, in seven years, seven years in the era he's competed in versus Federer and Nadal. And also look, these guys, Rarinka and Andy Murray and other, other players who, who made their moves too. I mean, very impressive. So, yeah, it's it's definitely about kind of the 202020 now is the last domino, the last uh thing to to consider. Um Novak did this from 2011 until now 2021. So it was over a period of of 10 years where he captured seven year end number ones. A little bit different from how Pete did it. 6 years in a row for Pete. So so how do we uh compare and contrast these these reigns, Joel? Well, let's see. Okay, 11 through 21. So that's that's 11 years, right? It's 11 oh, years. Yes. Yep. So Pete, Pete was Math. sixth grade. You know, that's a great, uh, that's a great um, question. I, I, think, I think Sampras is also, you know, I did this interesting research in the um, 12 years, the first 12 years of the Federer-Nadal-Djokovic um, reign before Murray became number one, only they three held number one. In the 12 years before Federer became number one, 14 men held it at different times. Sampras finished year at number one six times, but he wasn't always a wire to wire because there were so many people winning on different surfaces. You know, I call that kind of the sphere of influence area. You had your Gorns and your Krychecks on the fast surfaces. You had your Mooster 
and your Sergio Brugueras getting their clay points. And uh, they're just different. It just shows you how the game evolved. I mean, I think, I think the, um, you know, Novak's thing, what I, what I find most impressive about Novak did it while around two other geniuses who also had their share of moments. Nadal in particular, Nadal, I believe has finished number one five times, as has Federer. Federer's last year doing that was 09. Nadal first did in 08. So that Novak has kind of navigated through those guys, against those guys, that to me is incredible. Incredible how he's figured out a way to problem solve those guys. Part of the big three's legacy for me is longevity and just how far you can push a career. And I think that's part of Novak's unique way of, of breaking this record compared to Pete, you know, Pete Borg, you know, they had these kind of super primes and, and were, it was over a, a lot earlier than Djokovic, Nadal and Federer could say. So I kind of like that, that those two facts mirror each other. Well, Borg finished number one, three times, um, three times, Sampras six, Sampras retired around 31. Yeah, no, I think, I think what's interesting is kind of what I call the, uh, the acceleration of the pit crew. And Novak was followed in the path of Martina Navratilova and Yvonne Lendl in turning the whole care and maintenance of a player to new heights, partially because he can afford it, just like all the players can afford it. I, mean, I was looking at, uh, you know, Francis Tiafo is 41 in the world. He's already earned $5 million. He can afford a pit crew in a different way than number 41 could have 20 years ago. And that's yeah. great. And that's great. So the ability, you know, I was talking to a, a former player who was very good in the 70s and 80s. He said, yeah, you know, we had, we had a trainer and we were all vying to get his attention, the ATP trainer guy. Now players travel with them. That's a, that's a huge difference in longevity and fitness. Now, granted, they all have them now, but the better ones, I mean, Novak, it, that, that is state of the art, all the things he does, diet and nutrition and stretching, and stretching. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of maintenance, we'll see how uh, Novak manages his schedule the rest of the way because he's locked up that year end number one. Does that put his status for the ATP finals in a new city, Turin, in jeopardy? Davis Cup, does that put it in? Well, that doesn't matter for the rankings. But um, Amy, how do you think Djokovic moves forward here in 2021? It's a bit of a conundrum. I mean, he's typically a man of his word. And if he, you know, committed to Davis Cup and, and he's really needed to play it, I'm sure he will. Um, his relationship with the ATP is a little strained right now because of what he's been trying to do with the PTPA and they're trying to vote on this big 30 year strategic plan and, and Novak's group has wanted a delay in that so that they could really comb over it because it's a 30 year plan and all that. So he, he doesn't need to do anything for the ATP if they're not doing anything for him. I don't know if that factors into it. Um, but as you point out, Gil, he's got the year in number one locked up. He's got plenty of money, so he doesn't need the money. Um, it would just be the ATP would want him there to compete. So who knows? I mean, if I were advising him, I would say probably don't do don't do the tour championships maybe davis cup but yeah i hear the advice part and i get the I sense the pragmatism it's just kind of interesting how the three have evolved not 
at three. Many top players evolved. Yeah, I'll just a la carte pick and choose. It's like, hey, you've qualified to reach this event in the support in the tour you've agreed to play. I mean, it's not the all-star game where you just, yeah, I don't think I'll play the all-star game when I spend time with my family. It's the year-end championships. So I wish he'd play. I'd like to see him play it because I'd like to, I think it'd be, it's, it's great for the game overall, like for the fans who care about these events and, and want to see their greatest players vying. And yet at the same time, I've sometimes wondered if that event is indeed, is it more all-star game than Super Bowl? I mean, one year, sometimes it decides a ranking other years, it doesn't. Novak has clinched the year number one. I, I, I really hope he plays because I think it would just be neat. It would elevate the significance and the engagement factor with the tournament. There is something that he's probably going for, I believe, Gil. Some sort of won it more than anyone else or something. There's a, a nugget to be had in there. As if he needs it. These guys, well, yeah. these guys each, every I mean, time it's another little page, yeah. Yeah, he's never won in Turin. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Right. Well, I actually think that's a factor. I think there might be some new city curiosity. Uh, I mean, I just think trying to trying to be in Novak's shoes. Maybe you go to play it. Uh, that's maybe that's extra motivation to go play it. Joel, I think that's a it's a good point because just to have this conversation is weird. It's kind of like, well, you know, you qualified, so you go play that event. It's a big event. What, what's the discussion here? And Amy, I also think you make a good point because I was listening to Vashik Pospisil on um, Mike Cation and Noah Rubin's podcast, um, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network as well. And you know, Pospisil was like, the ATP is playing dirty here. They are spreading lies. I mean, venom from Pospisil. So I can't imagine the PTPA led by Djokovic and Pospisil. I can't imagine they're very happy with how this whole thing has been handled and, and how it's played out. And this is like an ATP banner event. So I hadn't thought about that. I do think that is an interesting thing to keep in the back of mind. And uh, my hunch is that Novak is going to play, but it wouldn't shock me if he doesn't. That'll do it for this episode of three. We're available on all podcast platforms. Make sure to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a big help to us. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.